Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. Uh, and I'm Pete Wright, coming in hot with that big Schmidt energy. <laughs> Today, we are talking about Minute 106, which begins with the end of Red Skull and ends with the beginning of The Crash. Joining us on the show today, it is one of our favorites from season one, Heidi Bennett from Vibrant Visionaries. Hello, Heidi. Hey, howdy, y'all. <laughs> oh, Heidi, did you pick the best minute? Oh, oh, gosh. Coming in so dreamy and colorful right here. <laughs> and you said the name of, was that the director? I had no idea who the director of this was at all. Oh, Joe Johnston. Joe Johnston. Yeah, yeah director yeah. of Jumanji and Honey and Shrunk the Kids and Rocketeer. The Rocketeer and October Sky and The Wolfman. <laughs> a bunch of a God, bunch of well, different things. Yeah. And yeah. most important, especially for this minute, he was on the special effects team for folks like Spielberg and, and, oh, okay. and okay. so work this this is the big indie energy, actually, right? This <laughs> is like the final scene of Indiana Jones and Melty Face and all that stuff. And it just feels very Joe Johnston to me. Uh, at this point, I think it's awesome. Yeah, just before this minute, there was some of that crackly energy that was reminding me definitely of that melty face, you know, going into melty zone. Going into the melty zone. That's where <laughs> we are right here at the top of the minute. Yeah, this is where. Uh, you know, Red Skull, for whatever reason, in the last minute, he decided, oh, the Tesseract is loose. I'm just going to pick it up. And, uh, you know, he he knew better. He's never done it before. But here he's just like, yeah, no, I've got this. And uh, it doesn't doesn't treat him so well. I don't know if it was um, he's fi he had finally decided that he really did have the power of the gods, uh, only to realize he didn't. Uh, a little bit of his hubris shining through, or if he just wasn't thinking and grabbed it to make sure it didn't fall and and get lost or something. But yes, this is where we really kind of get to watch it. Uh, it. It seems kind of like it's eating him away, like it's disintegrating him and kind of sucking him up into uh into space through this kind of space hole that's opened up in the top of the ship and it's it kind of looks like the bifrost from yeah uh, from our last story yeah. and it kind of it kind of also is a very tropey bit of that pillar of light that is so common in movies around this era with that beam shooting up into the sky i think generally you don't want to be sucked into a space hole <laughs> my husband was saying he was being heimdalled so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> But the thing about the, the 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 tesseract brick at this point is it so we get the beginning and it takes red skull it melts him up and sends him the it heimdalls him sends him through the space hole and then it falls on the ground and it melts through the plane let's 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 save do you have a problem with that let's save that you don't want to talk about that no, let's let's finish talking about red skull and space and all of that okay because okay. yes there's there's plenty of tesseract talk after the disappearance <laughs> of our antagonist okay because that is a big thing okay a big thing yeah uh, heidi what do you think of the uh, kind of the the way that red skull is uh wiped out of the film or sucked out however you want to look at it oh my gosh i paused it during that and <laughs> 
there's no bad pause. Like every little section <laughs> is just a beautiful iteration of meltiness and and pulling up into the spaceness. It just looks gorgeous. It's the kind of thing that looks like 10, 20, 30 years later, it's not going to be like, oh, these effects are so old, you know, they really show their age. Like, I can't imagine that looking better. It's exciting to see my favorite bit, which I think is really interesting. Well, it kind of has some color shifts in there, which is cool. But when it hits his face, uh, you know, we'd been talking about this, like, what are we really looking at with his face here? You know, is it some sort of red skin over his face? And as we see it kind of move across his face, it seems to eat away his eyes and his I guess it is red skin, and it seems to kind of leave an actual skull behind, which is funny because when it does that, I'm assuming just because of the light, but it literally looks like a Terminator skull. It looks right. like a silver Terminator, like about six seconds into this minute. It uh, So I was just like, maybe he is a Terminator, and maybe that's what, <laughs> maybe that's what the serum did to him. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, he's been playing fast and loose with the Tesseract, so it didn't really surprise me when he picked it up because he seems like he thinks, yeah, that he can do anything. Yeah, yeah. Do you think he's feeling pain? Like, is that why he's screaming, like, at some point? Or is he just, like, is this more like a transporter? Because we happen to have the benefit of knowing that he, you know, at, in some form, he ends up somewhere in the future. right. I don't know. The way that it's described is it's kind of a purgatory, which makes it seem like, I mean, he's floating and stuff. It makes it seem like he actually did die. Yeah. And is left in some different form. But it's weird. It's like, why does the Space Stone do this to him specifically? Right. As opposed to, is it because like when the same energy that had been captured and, and put into those little, you know, peas that the Tesseract weapons had been shooting, those, it seemed to just be disintegrating people, but maybe as we kind of thought, well, are, is it really just kind of dumping them somewhere in space and these people are left floating in the vortexes of space somewhere? Um, or maybe they're all in Vormir with him, but it just, it's weird that it acts this particular way with him. And I don't know if it's just because he's holding the cube or what, but it's... yeah. I don't know. It's peculiar. I thought that was strange. Yeah. And the other thing that happens is like, it looks like the plane that they're in, it doesn't break apart literally, but like sort of magically opens up for him to fly up too. So there does seem to be intelligence in whatever's happening. Okay. That's an interesting. So you, it's like there might be some form of intelligence involved in the space stone and it's like reading his evilness and says, oh, we're not just going to disintegrate you. You're arrogant. You think you're one of the gods. We're going to actually do something else with you. It's almost like a judgment box. Is that what? Yeah, just it seems like it. it, Yeah, maybe it has some ability to discern, I guess, energetically or like whatever. Yeah. I was putting in it's a very pretty, pretty new age. <laughs> like I was going to say the sorting hat and go kind of old. his vibes. And yeah. yeah, sorting his... childish and magical, but yeah. <laughs> He's slithering up into the. <laughs> well, whatever it does, it is weird. And it does totally fit into the trope that, that really hit right around this time. This was 2011. And there were a lot of films 
uh, and they, I mean, it's been going on for a while, but this whole idea of this trope of this beam shooting up into space. And Pete, I, on the next reel, we had one of these in a film that we had talked about at one point, and I know we did some research, and I think right around this time, one of the, like, 2011, 2010, one of these years, there were, like, six or seven movies that came out that same year that had, like, the blue beam shooting into space. And, you know, it's it's just funny that it is such a weird, weirdly common trope, because it's like, I don't know. It's like, why is that a thing? I don't know. Right, right. And so do you do you remember the Blue Beam movies? I, I, I know one of them was one of the s- movies. I think it was one of the Zack Snyder Superman movies. I've got a I've got a list of Blue Beam movies and I can't I, I can't sort it by year. But the list of Blue Beam, most a lot of them are Marvel, uh, but Amazing Spider-Man, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, Avengers, Avengers Age of Ultron, Avengers Infinity War, Big Hero 6, Cap. Uh, Narnia, uh, the the uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Chronicles of Riddick has a blue beam. Don't forget Dark City. How about The Dark Tower, 2017? Fantastic Four has a blue beam. Fifth Element is all about the blue beam. Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. Anybody remember that? Oh, so good. Uh, Ghostbusters <laughs> definitely has a blue beam, the 2016 uh, the version of it. Uh, Gods of Egypt. Yeah, there are a ton of blue beams everywhere. So this, this goes on and on. Yeah, it's it is quite the thing that uh, seemed to happen for whatever reason. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, in our favorite site, tvtropes.org, of course, they have it listed. It's They list it as the pillar of light as opposed to, I think, the, the reverse is when a beam is coming down to the planet, yeah. which I think they call like a uh like a sat hit or something like that hmm. but um but yeah i mean it's it is a very tropey thing i don't mind it i think it looks cool in context of the movie you know i think it it works i did think it was weird at the time like why is this do this to him but it didn't do this to anyone else that it had you know hit uh you know throughout the course of the film obviously it ties into later stories but it still was kind of a weird thing but still it looks really cool and to that end you know, I guess in a story where he, where Red Skull, the character, has tied it so strongly into Norse mythology and has talked about Odin and and uh, tied into the Tesseract, and it was hidden in a wall behind a uh, uh, a picture of Yggdrasil. So at this point in the film, when it opens up space and it does something that seems like Bifrost, and it looks kind of like what we had seen throughout the Thor movie, I guess I I don't question it too much at this point because it feels somehow tied into all of that sort of mythology because we weren't tired of it yet right but anyway uh that's the end of of old red skull uh heidi do you like hugo weaving as red skull or should i say did you like hugo oh weaving my as gosh red skull? yes 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 <laughs> yeah he was magnificent and i love him and i mean he's been in so many big franchises and everything. And he always brings something spectacular and yeah, he was great. And just, just like last month I was watching this movie again, just as I have Disney plus. So I'm like, yes, I'm always throwing on these Marvel movies and rewatching them and watching all the extras and watching how they, you know, did the effects for, you know, the makeup effects and everything on him. And it just looks so awesome. And he just seems like a, a fun, good sport, you know, behind the behind the scenes. And, you know, he's playing an interesting character. I know we've had a lot of issues with Red Skull over the course of the season because he is often just kind of a mustache twirling villain. But I was thinking about it. It's like, you know, he, it's actually kind of interesting because, OK, despite whatever we think of the character himself, his role in the film here, he really becomes the linchpin 
for so many of the following films because here he's retrieved the space stone and introduced it into the story which becomes a huge thing for thanos because that's kind of what wakes thanos up to oh i need to be paying attention to this planet down here and he kind of sets the whole thing up with hydra which of course is going to uh, you know infiltrate shield and become a major uh, story point so it's interesting that this character and his actions in the course of this film have set up like major story threads that will take place over the next two phases. And I guess I never really thought about that before, but uh, you know, to that end, I'm like, Oh, he really is kind of a, a critical character to, to where we go moving forward. Yeah. And I don't mind having him just be uh, predictable in his, you know, mustache twirling or whatever. Like I don't need every single villain to have like super you know deep depth, <laughs> depth and everything that <laughs> gets a little exhausting you know so um it's like Why he looks evil he acts evil so he is evil he sounds evil he's evil <laughs> that's all i need that's amazing i had a question okay so right after uh he heimdall's on out of there then there's like a discharge that happens to the uh ship and i was i don't know what that is is that like is that the space hole closing yeah maybe yeah i i get yeah it's right around second 11 12 it, yeah it looks like like when you're watching it it looks like the valkyrie just blew up because it's this huge white light that fills the screen and it changes the color tone because the tesseract energy is kind of made everything blue and then as soon as that goes off you get that shockwave come out and everything's clear except for the cockpit, which still has the the blue glow for some reason, which is, I guess, the final part of the I mean, it literally looks like, uh, you know, the closure of something. And then the Tesseract falls to the floor. Right. I don't get it. I, don't, I don't wish I knew what was going on there, but it's a. Yeah, you know, it's it's to the same point, though. Sometimes the effect is just the effect. You know what I mean? Just because it looks cool. Right. It's kind of a cool way to close out the blue beam. Maybe that's all it is. Yeah, probably, because then you see it. You're seeing it from above and seeing that everything looks besides the one hole that is in like the windshield, I guess you call it. Um, yeah, it's all uh, complete again. Right, right, right. Yeah, the window. The, yeah, the portal has been closed. Right. Portal. Yeah. But, Pete, that leads us to the Tesseract, which now falls to the floor of the uh, cockpit. In Well, I, I, I was going to say inert, but I should say it's still glowing blue. In the script, it's actually cracked, which I thought was interesting. Oh. Uh, we don't see that here. It's just glowing intense blue. And then it does this thing that I never have understood, but it basically turns into uh, alien acid right. and dissolves uh -huh. itself through several layers of the floor until it falls out of the bottom of the ship. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> Why is it doing that? Is it so hot? Is it acid? Is it, is it acid energy? Hot acid energy? It doesn't make any sense. It sends... It sends Red Skull up into the sky, and it burns through the plane. What happens when it hits the ground? How far? Like, there's no evidence that it will stop. Is it going to burn a hole straight through the planet? Seems like it could. I get kind of fired up about the stupid Tesseract brick heat. But it does, does go into the water, so, I mean, maybe... Just... So you think it cools off? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> it's like volcanic... Uh, On uh, splashdown. Lava, yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. 
I don't know. Do you have a strong opinion, Andy? Like you, I, I think you agree with me, right? It's silly. I, I, I totally hate it. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's interesting in the script, and again, I keep going back to the script, but I mean, that's where they start with too. And obviously they chose to change it because what happens in the script when it uh, falls to the ground and then it uh, the plane banks violently. This is this is how it's written. Suddenly the plane banks violently, its engines roaring. Steve races for the controls. The forgotten cube tumbles across the flight deck. Tink, 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 and flies out a hole in the fuselage. Tink, tink, tink. As it was bouncing across the flight deck. But the point is, not the tink, 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 but the I point want to hear is more about that there sure, was a right. hole in the fuselage that had must have been caused when when Steve and Red Skull were fighting and had fallen out through a hole that had been made. Now, the only hole that we ever see that they have created in the ship, even though Red Skull shoots at him a number of times, the only hole that's that's created is in the front window. So I guess that's why they chose to just have it go out this way. But still... It would have made a lot more sense to me if it had found a hole and fallen out that way. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, Heidi, what what what's your sense? Do you care or do you like... You know, that's what I love about doing this with y'all is like, <laughs> I never even... It just never crossed my mind that there was a problem or an issue or, of course, it did remind me of Alien and one of my all-time top favorite films of all time, but it didn't feel mm-hmm. like... Like, now I feel like... I mean, there's always been homages or winks or whatever um, to other films. And now it seems like it's just, they're so prevalent and so, or so referential that it, it's, it's just like it baked into the DNA of so many movies. I didn't feel that about it. I wasn't like, oh, here's their little nod to Alien. You know, it wasn't like right. that. I was just like, oh, that's cool. It did that. I mean, to me, and I'm, I'm coming from a place of, never read any of the comics of any of these. Like to me, my entry into comics was the nineties alt comic, uh, uh, love and rockets, eight ball hate, you know, that kind of space. And I really got into comics then. I mean, I was collecting and, you know, reading the comics journal and, you know, really into it, but it was all that stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't any of the the superhero stuff, any Marvel, wasn't any DC, it wasn't anything. So I'm really coming in here with no, you know, oh, well in the comics they did this or these, you know, this comes from this, whatever. So um, to me, it's like, it's still this mystery blue square that could do anything. And so who am I to say it wouldn't, you know, melt the floor and, and, um, then just be cooled by going and getting into the ice or the water or wherever it lands. So yeah, didn't, didn't, didn't even phase me. The problem is with all of that is as soon as we hit infinity war, if we get the gauntlet, then why doesn't somebody just put the gauntlet in the ocean? <laughs> just cool it off. Maybe it won't <laughs> work if all of the stones are cold. Yeah, I guess that's like, there's rules which i understand it's good to have like rules established but to me i never really know what the rules of these um infinity stones are well and especially because we're at a point in the franchise where they you could make the case that the rules are inconsistently applied 
Like they, they weren't quite sure what the rules are yet. I think you'd argue that they didn't know that it was the space stone that, you know, at this point, right? it's the Tesseract. They're probably starting to figure that out. Well, I, maybe they're figuring it out by this point, because obviously they're, they're tying this very directly into the next film, which does tie into Thanos. So all of mm-hmm. it does start connecting. So maybe by this point, as they're creating it, uh, they are starting to have these conversations and thinking, oh, but this could actually be this. Right now, it looked like a cosmic cube, but it could turn into something else. And And so I can see them piecing those things together but even there it's like when it comes to rules it's an infinity stone so you know as we've said before the powers (laughs) are very ill-defined it is it does whatever it needs to do i just i guess part of me doesn't like thinking that it's like the ring of power and lord of the rings which as it's described seems to kind of have a mind of its own sometimes is like sometimes it decides oh i'm going to fall off of this person's finger because i want to be found by somebody else you know like how they that that sort of those elements are set up in those stories and i don't like the idea where i'm thinking is the tesseract conscious in some way where it's going to say you know what i need to go hide in the ocean and wait for somebody more important to find me you know it's yeah uh, it's, it's sometimes it seems a little weird like giving the tesseract agency yeah yeah. And I guess I, I don't know. I guess I end up seeing the the thing. The the way that I end up having to read it is that in the process of doing this whole thing with Red Skull where it, it disintegrates him, blasts him into space, it did get incredibly hot. I mean, that's I think probably what the team decided they were going to make it seem like. It got incredibly hot and when it fell, it was so hot that it fell through uh, several layers of the ship and then down into the ocean where it did cool off. I mean, it's the Arctic Ocean, so yeah, it's awfully icy and cold. So, you know, that's what they're going for. You know, I can say, okay, sure, I'll buy it. Okay, all right. So I'll let it go for now. One other thing that does irritate me with it, though. Two other things that irritate me with it, though. <laughs> when it falls out of the ship, I think that they did it in a way so we can see it falling and we know, oh, it's in in air now and it's falling to the ground. Mm-hmm. The ship is going hundreds of miles an hour and it falls virtually straight down like so we can continue seeing it for quite a while before uh, before it it moves out of the uh, the hole. If it had actually fallen out of a plane going this fast, like it would have instantly been sucked backward by the the force of the air and we wouldn't have seen it. And again, I know that's an incredibly petty thing. And I know they probably just left it there. So, oh, we can see it's tumbling into the air. But it does bug me that there's it's falling in a way that it shouldn't. But maybe it's super, super celestially heavy. <laughs> so, and so it flies completely parallel with the flight path of the plane. Oh, uh, okay. God, I don't know. All right. Here's the other thing that bugs me. Stupid movies. What is Steve's goal here? Is it is it? I mean, obviously, he's in this huge plane that we know it has bombs on it and it's heading for New York. I mean, and, and obviously he got on it because he was trying to stop Red Skull. But I, I don't think his intentions were necessarily to get the Tesseract, like he may not have known it was on here. So is the Tesseract not, Does because he, he doesn't go after it. And that was something I was thinking is like, is that something that would have been more important to go after? Do either of you have any thoughts on this? Like, was the Tesseract, should he have known that, oh, I need to stop that more than the ship? You do wonder. Like when he picks up the, his shield 
Why doesn't he dive out of the plane and get that Tesseract? Or does he just think, oh, there's no way I'll ever find it? I mean, it's falling straight down in parallel to the plane. He'd probably fall right along with it. It's still right under me. Yeah. As I continue flying, it's flying too. I don't know. Does that, do you wonder, Heidi, at all, like Steve's goal here? Like, what's, is it just to stop the plane? Yeah. I mean, re watching these minutes and questioning these minutes. <laughs> um, the curse of the show. <laughs> it reminds me of Finn. <laughs> okay. It reminds me of Finn. Uh, in The Last Jedi, when he decides on crate that he's going to fly his little thing that's like, it's kind of like tethered to the ground in the way it, right? it has like a little rudder and he's just jamming really fast and he thinks he's doing something really heroic and then Rose knocks him off course and he's really mad because, you know, it would have killed him but supposedly saved you know everybody everyone right her her logic is like hey you don't need to do that like yes that's very heroic looking and very dramatic and you you know you could be a martyr or whatever but i'm paraphrasing that's not what she says at all but like but (laughs) it was nowhere near as sophisticated as you were saying it right now but 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 she's just like knocks him off course and is like you know we can do this another way you don't it doesn't have to be a sacrifice this overarching theme of like we can do this with love and figure out a way and go as a team and you know whatever long and the short of it you as the single hero that doesn't have to happen and so i was kind of thinking of that with this where i was like really is this the only thing that could happen like if he's in the arctic and there are aren't there other resources can't we figure out something or can he look around and say is there a um parachute on this ship like he doesn't seem like he really goes through steps of of possibilities at a minimum are there no other soldiers like no other military units that can catch up with him like i don't know i get that gets me like it feels like there should be more planes by now all right enough yeah, well, let's let's save a lot of that conversation for tomorrow's minute because we have a lot more of the actual conversation between Steve and Peggy about all of this sort of stuff. So at this point, it's just Steve trying to figure out, like, what am I going to do here? But he doesn't go after the Tesseract. He's like, eh, who needs a little blue glowy box? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's brought nothing but heartache. Let it fall. I, you know, that's basically what he says. So I guess now what the movie is setting up for us is through a very convenient targeting map that that is uh, located in the cockpit. It shows the target of New York City and then the targeting map whip pans <laughs> across the top of the globe to show us where the plane is. I'm like, that's a really handy targeting map to, to work like a camera, yeah. uh, like a movie camera, and do this whip pan for us. So it, here's New York. It's in cinematic mode. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I wonder if it just does that. Like every five seconds, it whips back and forth between, yeah. this is you, this is your target, this is you. Totally. 100% that happens. Very strange. But anyway, I, I guess that's it, right? This is this plane. Okay, the plane is headed for New York City, the Valkyrie. On the plane, there were eight of these Flieger parasites, these little mini planes, these drop planes, mm-hmm. that are the bombs, right? Mm-hmm. One of which was going to New York City. Mm-hmm. 
Now, we've also seen at the very end of this minute, we get a shot to the kind of the schematic of the Valkyrie, where it shows red marks, where I guess they're bombs, where there are the eight little drop planes in the back, two of which are gone. We saw that happen last week. But there are still six of those drop planes in the back of them, presumably mm-hmm. all armed in some capacity. Not for New York, because that one, you know, uh, that one took off and and uh, actually Steve crashed it into the back of the Valkyrie. Yeah, and it's then back there are those, in the Valkyrie. It's back in the Valkyrie. Not flyable, <laughs> but it's back. And then there are those two images on either side of the Valkyrie that I assume are meant to be bombs, although maybe they're the engines. I'm not sure what they are. And so I guess... I don't know. The question is, like, why is the whole Valkyrie going to New York? If one of the drop planes was scheduled to go to New York, like, was that, I guess I'm not exactly sure what Red Skull's were intention, intentions were. If he already had a drop plane targeted for New York, was he still going to take the whole ship to New York? And then what's what was the end goal, to just kind of crash it into the city? That does seem foolish now that we're talking about it. Why doesn't he go to for fondue? Did you? Yeah, uh, really. Um, he passed that. Did you guys <laughs> talk about the real America bomber planes that were never actually made, but were like this that were supposed to be able to go from Germany to New York? Yeah, we talked about um, one of the, I don't believe it was specifically the America bomber, but I know which one you're talking about, but it is one of these flying wings. That had been kind of the the basis for this thing that would kind of fly over here. Um, but yeah, I mean, did you do some digging on that? Maybe you should tell us about that because that might clue us in. I mean, honestly, no, I didn't. I just looked at it on Wikipedia, but I didn't like read through anything except for that they that there were various proposals put forward, but the plans were eventually abandoned as being too expensive, too reliant on rapidly diminishing material and production capacity and or technically unfeasible. So just like a myriad of problems, but that's all under the America bomber, which I just, the fact that it, yeah, what was supposed to be able to go all the way to New York, I was like, okay, well, then that's what it's doing. It's going all the way to New York. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, I don't have an answer to the question except for that it, you know, that. It was the Horton uh, H-16 or 18, I guess, the Horton H-18 that we had kind of talked about, which was a flying wing that the Nazis had designed. They uh, But yeah, as you said, they never ended up um, actually building it. And that is the one that was kind of patterned for this particular ship. And, it's, you know, to your point, I guess if that, Again, in a movie that is often tying kind of these real world plans and things that had been, you know, in set in motion with things that are happening in the movie, I, inevitably, I suppose that's that's probably why the Valkyrie is flying to New York, uh, because that's what this particular bomber had been designed for. It doesn't make a ton of sense because it also has all these these little drop planes that are the bombs. But in the scope of what they were trying to accomplish, I guess that's what they were doing. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm I struggle with it though, as I think about it. Well, and and in the last minute, we learned that the little bomber 
sub bombers can fly faster than the Valkyrie. So by the time he gets to New York, New York should be, for all intents and purposes, useless. Yeah. Maybe he was going to land on the rubble and then... And have a triumphant moment of acquisition. Right. Have a triumphant takeover. Okay. Right. This is mine now. Maybe that's what it was. Okay. But still, okay. I don't know. uh, Steve doesn't really know much. And I I think that's the key that we have to remember is Steve is in this plane that is flying. And, you know, he is from New York. He sees New York as the target. And so I suppose if we have to look at it as a character who is making uh, very quick decisions with very little information, I suppose that's what we have to go with um, with these next couple of minutes. Right. I mean, Steve, Steve has never, as far as we know, he's never flown a plane before. Here he is now flying a plane. He doesn't seem to have a sense of the tech within this plane. So he's just kind of guessing as far as what he can and can't do. And I, I don't know. I guess that's kind of where we sit with things. Um, that's, that's the only thing I can really go after to kind of, um, figure all this out. But, but, you know, cause I guess the worry is, although this wasn't a worry when Steve, dropped the drop plane before the pilot could hop in and the drop plane fell probably over Germany. He wasn't worried about that blowing up when it when it hit. Right. So is he worried about the plane getting to New York and the bombs going off or is he just worried about the plane crashing into the like the city? I mean it's a big plane, we know that. I mean, do you have a sense as to why this is a concern for him? Well, and, and I guess I'm asking because I, I'm assuming and I think we have to assume that Red Skull did something to the plane that makes it hard to go off course, although it doesn't seem that hard, but still. <laughs> right. I mean, he, it's either on autopilot or it's not on yeah. autopilot, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just figured he think. yeah, his his thought is, I need to put this thing down because it's going to hurt my home simply and... You know, this is him throwing himself on top of the the bomb or the hand grenade, right? The grenade, yeah. This is the this is making this good is on just, that promise is, of his patriotism and, and yeah. courage. Well, yeah i I end up getting very frustrated with the end of this film because it starts feeling incredibly written, and I think this is something that Marvel does suffer with. With especially, I start feeling this. I'm really feeling it a lot in, in in Phase Four, where things feel written just to set things up for later stories. When Steve has to set this plane down in the ice, it's like, oh, well, we have to have Captain America frozen for a whole bunch of years because we need him to come out in you know 2012 so that he can help the Avengers, uh, you know, stop the Chitari, right. Uh, but I, I, and we're going to be talking about this all week because I have I have so many uh, nits to pick about other things that Steve could have done instead of uh, just crashing into the ice. And the fact that nobody starts to make the case at all that, Steve, wait a minute. I know you're not a pilot, man. Like, this is what I want to hear on the radio. Steve, hold, slow down. Slow down. You're you're at a 12. I need you at about a six because we can solve this problem and you could actually live through it. And let's go ahead and, and do that. Like, there's none of that. It's just like Steve is going down his patriotic duty and we know where it's going, even starting at this minute. What's that? Um, there's a parody movie. And I'm I'm not going to be able to tell you which one it is, but I know there is one where it, it's a character who is like this and 
everybody is just like, oh, no, no, we just need to flip this switch. No, 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 I'm going to have to do this. I have to sacrifice myself. And everybody's like, but you don't because we can just do this thing. But this person is like so dead set, like, you know, written in such a way that they have to they have to make this sacrifice, even though all these other characters are presenting options about, no, but we just need to flip this switch. No, no, no. Goodbye, all. You know, it's like one of those parodies. (laughs) And I feel... (laughs) When I really watch this film, especially minute at a time, I can't help but feel like Steve is that character. Like, he just can't not make these calls when there are so many better ways to handle things. And uh, I don't know. I So I'm I'm going to be right in the middle because I feel like <laughs> I also am frustrated by that when we do it one minute at a time. But I'm also on Team Heidi in that when I watch the end of this movie, just not a minute at a time, I love it. I actually am quite fine with it. Like, it's it's like pulling it apart is what breaks it for me. But the act of not pulling it apart, it's okay. I like Cap. I like, I like who he is. I like that he's making the sacrifice for whatever reason. Maybe he has information. I don't know. And <laughs> I do know, to your point, we need to get him in the ice. That's lore. We got to find a way to get him in the ice. Yeah. Well, the other thing that crossed my mind, too, was that he's not just a human, right? He's got extra strength and power and everything. And maybe he thinks he also feels like, well, let's just see how invincible this body that I'm in is. Uh, you know, maybe <laughs> so- <laughs> I'll survive this crash because... We don't know, like, as much yeah. as we don't know about the Tesseract, we don't know really... The, he doesn't know about himself. He doesn't know about himself, so maybe... But I do I do get that in the, the way it is written, and as we move into the next minutes here very soon, I'm sure, <laughs> over the course of the, you know, next few episodes of the podcast here, is that it's also nicely set up that this, you know, goodbye that and, and a kind of but with a promise between him and and Agent Carter, future yeah. Agent Carter. Well, certainly not a promise with uh, it's not a promise with Jim Marita who gets shoved out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's hosed. It's like at least they at least they let Marita on the radio. I mean, that is his job after all. <laughs> oh, all right. Well. To your point, this has been a long episode, so let's uh, let's put a pin in it. We'll come back because we've got a lot to talk about with all of these plans that Steve has and what uh, Agent Carter is trying to get him to do. So, um, so let's stop here, um, and and we'll talk more tomorrow. So, Heidi, first question for you: Have you bought that uh, ghost town that we talked about? <laughs> Oh, the good. We did an Iron Man episode. <laughs> no, but I would love to do something like I would love to have like some property where I could host people to you know unplug and get away and and right. uh, eat really good food and have some adventures and in, in nature. I think that would be really fun. So that would be absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, tell everybody where they can find you and what you're up to out there on the internet. Yeah. So vibrantvisionaries.com is the place you can get the podcast where I talk with indie filmmakers, people in horror, sci-fi, cartoonists, artists, all sorts of just sort of quirky weirdos. And we talk about creative process or whatever their latest interesting project is. I've covered a lot of film festivals. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of filmmakers and a lot of 
um, film making process and people who have been in Marvel um, and Star Wars properties and such. So you can find that at vibrantvisionaries.com. And there's also the new YouTube channel. The link is there as well. There's some of the interviews are on there and then also started a cooking show and I'm adding other cooking shows and other shows in the future. So if you want like mine is Vibrant Kitchen and it's just like super simple, easy recipes with like something vibrant and spicy and delicious you know, in, in it. And, uh, yeah, it's just been really fun. So that's what I've been working on lately. And I actually work on that with David Smith, who's another movies by minutes, um, person. Awesome. Awesome. Well, check all of that out, everybody. And, uh, yeah, thanks so much, Heidi. And we'll be back tomorrow to talk about minute one Oh seven. So Pete, thanks as always. Close your eyes, Andy. Don't look at it, Andy. (laughs) Close your eyes. (laughs) Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega. And this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.